Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week, we're going to speak with journalist Molly Minta from Mississippi Today about one young conservative's experience taking the only critical race theory class in the state, which is offered at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Then we're going to speak with Noah Berlatsky about inflation, which seems like a dull topic, but it will likely play, well, likely play a major role in the midterm elections, although there's a lot that can happen between now and then. Um, but first, I just wanted to mention something quickly about this midterm election cycle uh, and the punditry that we are already seeing. Uh, they, they start early. And this is something that kind of drives me batty. I guess that is um, often what inspires my introductions these days, something that drives me batty. And um, we've spoken in the past about this one, about something political scientists call thermostatic public opinion. Ugh, so boring, whatever. Um, it's a model of how political preferences swing in back and forth when it comes to like government activism and government spending. And basically, to simplify, the the idea of, a, of thermostatic public opinion is that the, the public is a thermostat. And when things get too hot with the government, they want to cool things off. And when things get too cool, they want to heat things up. So uh, in a nutshell, when Republicans come into power, they talk about cutting everything, cut Social Security, Medicare, this and that. And the public is like, wait a second, we want more social spending. Don't cut everything in response. And then when Democrats get into power, they propose new programs, you know, build back better and this and that. And the public becomes wary of government intervention. So thermostatic. And um, like I said, this is... Uh, Sim simplified, right? It, like many models, it's it's simple. Uh, there's other stuff going on. Voters who identify with the party in power, that is to say the party that controls the White House, they get a little complacent. They figure, okay, my guys got this. We're, we're in charge, so we can kind of sit back a little bit. The party that is not in power um, feels threatened, and that motivates them. So they're like, oh, man, I got to go out and get rid of, you know, let's let's go Brandon. Right. Um, and this is one of the reasons that the party that controls the White House usually, usually does poorly in the midterms. And there was a political scientist and I don't I don't recall who it was offhand, um, but he put it even more simply. He said that parties get punished for doing stuff. It doesn't really matter what the stuff is. They just, they get active, they get in control, they get in charge and they do stuff. And then people are like, oh, we don't like you because you did stuff. Various people. And these are all variations on a theme that seems right to me, very right to me, which is that it's a pendulum that swings when things are normal. During normal circumstances, the pendulum swings. And I just want to make two points about this. Um... First, this way of viewing politics is, if I'm frank, kind of boring, right? It's, it's mechanical. It's, um, it is certainly anathema to pundits and punditry because pundits want to tell you that this party lost because they miscalculated, right? They, they underestimated public passions about this or that, uh, or they moved too far to the left or they moved too far to the right, or they chose bad candidates, or that party won because of their brilliant strategy or because of messaging or whatever. And 
to be clear, I'm not saying that candidates and strategy and messaging and all of that stuff don't matter at all, but they matter. They kind of matter at the at the margins, right? They aren't necessarily driving the bus during normal times. And I think that you should keep this in mind as we approach the midterm season. Most of what you read, most analyses of the political lay of the land do not factor in thermostatic public opinion because there's no there's little room for punditry when you acknowledge the reality of thermostatic public opinion right and so most of the stuff that you read and most analyses of the political lay of the land are bullshit and god i've made this point in many election cycles i know i know um much of that is a pundit expressing his or her own preferences or priors, right? And then attributing them to the public at large. So like, I want Democrats to be more progressive and outspoken and aggressive. And so I, I will write a piece and say, oh, you know, Democrats, they were, they were too timid and they didn't, they weren't progressive enough. And that, that cost them or the other way. And the other way is obviously more common that they move too far to the left or defund the police, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there's something else going on here that uh, I just want to comment on, which is that thermostatic public opinion isn't like a, a guarantee of anything, right? Um, there are exceptions of the kind of midterm tendency for the party in power to lose. Uh, Democrats won the midterms after Republicans impeached Bill Clinton for lying about sex, for example, the 1998 midterms. And that impeachment was very unpopular. Most of us have, after all, let's face it, lied about sex at one point or another, right? And then um, George W. Bush's party won the 2002 midterms following the 9-11 attacks. So uh, I guess that was like... 14 months after the 9-11 attack, something like that. Um, now, I, I do not think it is a sure thing that the Republicans are going to win this fall. But if the elections were held now, they, they would. They almost, almost certainly would, according to the polls. Um, and this is not even two years after the former president attempted a coup d'etat and... Uh, incited his supporters to engage in a violent insurrection at the Capitol. And that attempted coup is ongoing, as we've said many times on the show. It's ongoing. It's not over. And so, you know, I believe that there's this massive disconnect. This should be a midterms like 2002, right? We didn't think things were normal 14 months after 9-11. Um, and I do not think we should be seeing politics as normal now. Right. A poll released this week found that the share of respondents who blame Donald Trump for the insurgency of dunces has actually declined in the past year. So um, people have a powerful bias towards normalcy. The media have a bias towards normalcy. Um, and the fact that we are talking about this election season like it is normal for me is a real failure. It's a failure of uh, of the political press. Uh, and a failure of the Democratic Party and its surrogates to consistently stay on offense and to stick to a, uh, a message. Um, it's a failure to connect 
Republicans writ large with Trumpism, right? There's this whole tendency within the Democratic leadership, at least, to say, oh, Trump was an aberration. He wasn't reflective of uh, the fine tradition of the Republican Party. That's not helping them, right? And there's just no way that this midterm cycle should rest on normal politics. There's no way that the Republican Party, which is still fighting internally over 2020, should be able to make like critical race theory or mask mandates, which enjoy pretty broad support or whatever. uh, Inflation we're going to talk about. uh, Salient midterm issues. Right. And I don't know if they will be able to, because we're going to have a lot. A lot is going to happen between now and November and have public hearings about January 6th. Who knows? Indictments may come down. I don't know. But the fight for pluralistic democracy that is currently underway in this country should be front and center and not like an afterthought. And these other issues are are secondary. They really are. Anyway, I needed to get that off my chest. If you're wondering why I've been burned, so burned out, um, <clears throat> as regular listeners know that I have been, all of that is a big part of it. It really is. And now that I have gotten that off my chest, let's move on with the show. We'll take a quick break and be right back with Molly Minta. Stay tuned. Oh, well, in five years' time, we could be walking around a zoo with the sun shining down over me and you. And there'll be love in the bodies of the elephants too. And I'll put my hands over your eyes, but you'll peek through. And there'll be sun, 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 all over our bodies. And sun, 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 all down and next. And there'll be sun, 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 all over our faces. And sun, 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 so what the heck? Cause I'll be laughing at all of you. Silly little jokes and we'll be laughing about how we used to smoke All those stupid little cigarettes and drink stupid wine Cause it's what we needed to have a good time But it was fun, fun, fun When we were drinking it was fun, fun, fun When we were drunk it was fun, fun, fun When we were laughing it was fun Welcome back. I'm still Joshua Holland. My next guest wrote a terrific piece about what one young conservative learned in the last remaining class where you can study actual critical race theory, not the ridiculous version of critical race theory touted by like Fox News and others, uh, but real critical race theory, the last class uh, on critical race theory in the great state of Mississippi. Molly Minta covers education for Mississippi Today. Uh, Also for Open Campus Media, the piece I want to talk to her about this week was published by Mississippi Today, and you can check it out at Mississippi Today, one word, and then uh, .org, not .com. Uh, Molly Minto, welcome to We've Got Issues. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for taking the time. Um, So in, in one sense, Brittany Murphy, this young student who you wrote about at the University of Mississippi Law School, is not someone you might expect to take the uh, the, last, the last critical race theory course in Mississippi, and certainly not someone who you would expect to find it um, edifying, really edifying. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about her background. Sure. So um, 
two things here. I, I believe this class, um, they, I believe that University of Mississippi started offering it in 2020. So it's sort of interesting. Um, it's kind of a new, a newer course, which I think sort of makes sense when you think about how critical race theory is. Um, it was uh, developed in the 80s, but it's kind of still an unusual class to yeah. that in most law schools. So it, it makes sense that it's maybe like kind of now in the last few years at Uni University of Mississippi Law School being taught. Um, but so Brittany, uh, she kind of has, I, I found her background really fascinating. So she's from um, like a town in Rankin County, Mississippi, which is one of these sort of, one of several communities around the city of Jackson that um, kind of boomed in population shortly after Brown versus Board of Education. So it's very much a, a white flight community. You can see that reflected in the politics um, of Rankin County. It's one of the most like consistently votes Republican um, in all of Mississippi, which of course is already pretty Republican. And Brittany, like, you know, she was in her chapter, high school's chapter of teenage Republicans from Mississippi. She interned for one of our Republican governors. Her parents voted for Donald Trump. She had voted for Donald Trump and still kind of, you know, even now in law school, um, her friends are, are mostly like fellow white Republicans. So yeah, she's definitely has an a background you wouldn't expect for someone. <laughs> now, what made her sign up for uh, Law 743, Critical Race Theory? And how did her friends and family react to that news that she was like diving into this course that they had probably heard a lot of misinformation about? Yeah. So I think part of it, part of it is Brittany, um, she's had we didn't, you know, I think when you write articles like this, um, a, part of it, you know, you learn some someone's whole life story and you have to figure out like, what should I include? Um, but but I, Brittany had sort of, she'd spent um, a couple of years in Wyoming um, and had kind of been introduced to how other people view Mississippi. And this is not something we included in the article. And I think hearing sort of their perspectives on her state kind of, it, you know, it didn't challenge like her politics, but I think it led her to kind of keep an open mind about about things or sort of try and like push herself to see issues from perspective of people outside of the state, which I think is really interesting. Um, so she was telling me when she saw that this was a class she could take this semester, her first thought was like, oh, how interesting. Um, she just wanted to know more. Um, she had also, of course, like seen that this critical race theory had become kind of this like big talking point um, in conservative media. So I think it was sort of a confluence of like she's kind of just become a very naturally curious person um, and it it has been a big issue. Um, and when she told sort of like her her community um, that she was going to take this class, um, her, her dad was, you know, we describe him as like venting on the phone. You know, he called critical race theory the most ridiculous concept. And some of her classmates were sort of like genuinely 
concern for her, you know, telling her like, you, you need to be careful because you might say the wrong thing in this class and you could get canceled for that. It's really interesting, the, the perception uh, that's out there. Uh, tell us, so tell us some of the things that she learned when she took the class and how that experience contrasted with those, with the kind of view of her friends and her family and her circles, what, what they had heard about critical race theory. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think what her, like her circles had, had largely heard is just sort of what you hear you know, on Fox News or kind of how like Christopher Rufo describes critical race theories as sort of, you know, uh, divisive, you know, communist, Marxist, um, you know, it, it just sort of, it exists purely to make white people feel guilty about, <laughs> right. yeah. Right. Um, and Brittany, going into the class, you know, she had, she had this perspective of, I just want to learn what, what this actually is about. Um, one thing that was particularly helpful for her was that the professor um, in the first day of class had sort of given this disclaimer, if you will, to the class, you know, telling them it's important to, you know, like that we're going to, we're going to discuss really like challenging material you know, if, if you're coming from a conservative background or a liberal background, critical race theory challenge con challenges conceptions across the political spectrum. Um, and this class, you know, it's okay if you don't understand something, this class is supposed to be a, a space where we're going to work through the material together. Um, and I think, so I think like hearing that help, helped um, Brittany going, going in and sort of what she learned is like, by and large, critical race theory, it's simply a legal framework. It's an analytical framework for how to, how to, how to look at um, how the like, American legal system has um, impacted racial minorities. Um, sorry, I just got a Slack notification. Um, okay. And yeah, so like one of the first assignments they did in class was they read Brown versus Board of Education, and they also read Derek Bell, one of the who's sort of like credited as the founder of critical race theory, his sort of arguments about how, in some ways, you can view school desegregation as um, like a failure and actually harmful to Black communities. And I think that was like, you know, Brittany said to me multiple times, like, I was just so surprised, like, we barely even said the word white the first couple of days of class. Like she was just surprised, like how little emphasis there was on actually looking at, you know, like making white people guilty, responsibility or individual actions of white people, and how it really is focused on like looking at this legal system and and you know deconstructing it. Yeah, and so Brittany ended up writing a letter to Mississippi state legislators who um, were working on one of these. We, we've spoke about this in a previous show. These vague and sloppily drafted anti CRT bills um these bills are famously like they don't say exactly what crt is and the idea is either to appeal to the to a conservative base and do fundraising or um to create a kind of chilling atmosphere in in how teachers approach history um the letter you don't say that it fell on deaf ears but it's it's implied uh then towards the end of your piece you write and i quote the younger generation in Mississippi is more perceptive 
than conservatives tend to give them credit for, Murphy said. You quoted her. Children will always be able to see how racism organizes society, even if their teachers are banned from talking about it. Murphy grew up seeing it. Critical race theory just gave her a way of talking about it. Good writing, by the way. Until I got to that p- paragraph, I thought Murphy was a, a like a uniquely independent young person from the reddest area of a very red state. But I wonder, is that my own prejudice talking? Like, how big is the generational gap on these issues uh, down in, in your neck of the woods? That's a great question. So some context. I, I'm originally from Florida. Um, I'm from, like, the part of Florida that's not really the Deep South, like, Orlando sprawl. So Not the Panhandle. I'm, not the panhandle. Um, That's Mississippi. The panhandle's Mississippi, basically, yeah. right? East Mississippi. Totally. Um, yeah. Or East Alabama, I guess. But um, yeah. yeah, so I've been reporting in Mississippi for a year. So I don't, you know, I'm still like every day trying to gain more knowledge about this state. Um, I don't I don't think it's necessarily the case that Brittany is like uniquely independent thinker. I think that you know, because she she talked to me about how, um, you know, she you know she's she's observant. Ch- like like children are observant; they can see what happens in in the classrooms. And she more so put it on. It's not that people don't see these things when when they're happening. It's not that people can't tell that, you know, you know we live in a segregated society. Um, they go to segregated schools. It's, it's more the, the next step of like, what do I do with that observation? Or how do I, how do I think about this information that I'm kind of taking in? And she talked about how like part her, you know, she feels like other people, other conservatives, they don't take that next step because they don't want to feel white guilt. They, they genuinely, you know, we talk about how critical race theory, like it doesn't actually teach you to feel white guilt. That that's not what the goal is in any sense. But I think, you know, when you're, you know, you've grown up in a conservative. Sorry, I may want to restart that. Like, I think it's more like um, you still, when you're learning about these things there's still an emotional response, I think, for a lot of white people is, is what Brittany was sort of trying to tell me. Um, you know, she even talked about like, we didn't include this in the article, but she's really curious to learn about affirmative action in this class because it's an issue where she feels like she really strongly agrees with Republicans. Um, and she uh, doesn't, she's trying to kind of grapple with like, I know factually, affirmative action we need it it's important for society but like emotionally um i feel like if i was able to do it coming from a public school if i was able to get into college why do other people need that help and she was trying to say like i know that emotional impulse is wrong and i need to try and like figure out how do i square that the circle of all, all these different conflicting thoughts so yeah i think to go to kind of your question it's not that she is uniquely observant. I think that she's just, you know, uh, willing to kind of confront those really difficult questions. And she's certainly not alone. There are there are a lot of young people in Mississippi um, 
moderate conservative young people who also feel that way. Yeah. Um, I've spent a lot of time in the South and hanging around Southerners. And I found that um, in some ways, the stereotypes that we hold up North are sometimes they're accurate, but a lot of times they're just really wildly off. Um, Let me ask you this and uh, let me know if you're uncomfortable, you know, I guess this calls for a little bit of editorializing, but to what degree do you think what Brittany Murphy experienced um, in this class, being exposed to the non-foxified version of CRT is kind of indicative of why there's such a large partisan education gap these days in the country um, among white voters and also, to what degree do you think it accounts for the rights kind of attacks on higher education? I'm not sure I fully understand the question. Or can, yeah, I don't think I fully understand the question. So, I mean, Murphy went into this class and she was she underwent, it seems, a transformation, right? Like the way she thought about these issues was significantly changed. Yeah. Um, and there's there's a lot of data that shows that education, for second, you know, uh, post post uh, what do you call it? tertiary education, um, right. college educated whites have a tendency, get, again, this is according to the research, to have lower degrees of what political scientists and sociologists called call racial grievance, right? Um, do you think that this is a story, uh, that, that kind of shows why that is? Cause there's the relationship between going to college and harboring less racial grievance. There's two theories of this, right? One is that it's self-selective. The people who are, um, less likely to harbor those grievances go to college. And the other is that it is a treatment effect that going to college and being exposed to other ideas and other people makes you less likely to harbor racial grievance and also to believe in racial stereotypes. Hmm. I'm just, it doesn't even have to be a question. I can just make a comment. I don't know to what extent I can really answer that. Um, Because like, like I said, you know, I've been on this beat for a year. I'm still learning, but I guess I'm, I'm curious, like, and maybe I would love to know your thoughts, like to what extent, class plays a factor in that. I feel like I can imagine if you go to college, if you're a white person, you go to college and it leads you to getting, you know, a high paying job. You, whereas if you're, you know, you never have the opportunity to go to college, you're a poor white person. Um, I, I can imagine like class probably, like the way that higher education leads to more wealth in, in a person's life probably refracts that a little bit, but I guess I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I think um, we've kind of gotten a better grasp on in recent years is the way economics and status are complementary, but different. So, you know, what a college education does is it, it helps you economically, but it also helps your status, your perceived status. And the lack of perceived status is something that it appears drives um, hostility towards others, to other groups, 
more so than lack of money in your pocket, right? So there's there's this idea of like status anxiety, the idea that white people feel that they're being displaced. It's not so much that they're being displaced from a job, but from their perch at right. the top of a social hierarchy. So right. it's interesting stuff. So there was a place, um, you mentioned Chris Rufo. Uh, before I let you go, I just want to step back for a moment and, and kind of um, get back to something you were just talking about, how Brittany Murphy um, kind of interprets the way that CRT has been received in her community versus the way others have. So um, you mentioned Chris Rufo and um, you've written here about actual CRT, right? It's taught to law students, uh, sociology students. It's a, a valuable study of how ostensibly race neutral laws and public policies can be drafted with um, racially discriminatory intent or can have racially discriminatory effects regardless of whether that was the intent or not. Um, and nowhere in this country, we should say, are K through 12 exposed to CRT, just as they are not exposed to, you know, graduate level statistics classes or yes. uh, science or anything else. And the right wing panic over CRT was almost single handedly launched by Chris Rufo, the right wing political operative and um, I would say propagandist. He has bragged about this on Twitter. It's all kind of very open. I want to just quote something that Dan Nexon, he's a professor at George Washington, wrote on Twitter. He was responding to a bill uh, being considered in West Virginia that would establish a, like a tip line that people could use to report teachers for teaching supposed CRT. This is in K through 12. Um, and the author of that bill said that it was important for the state to monitor, and I quote, negative depictions of U.S. history. So he's not pretending that this is about CRT. Uh, and again, this is what I was saying earlier, so vague as to kind of have a chilling effect. You can't teach history if you can't teach the negative bits. Anyway, Nexon wrote, and I'm going to quote him again, CRT is the Bolshevism of contemporary American reactionary populism and conservative authoritarian. It is the threat that justifies suspending the normal rules and that, if everything falls into place, brings otherwise reluctant centrist and center-right voters along. Um, and he says, what we're seeing here is a bit like the arc that produced the January 6th uh, attack in the Capitol. The right-wing me media ecosystem started warning of a democratic color revolution to overturn the election then engaged in a sick parody of one. Now, of Brittany Murphy, you write that she <coughs> she gets her, her conservative friends and family. Uh, she gets why they might, and I'm going to quote you, might be afraid of thinking about the issues at the heart of the theory. They don't want to feel white guilt, especially not in Mississippi. Um, she told you, and I quote, here in the Bible Belt, people ride on the fact that they're a good person. They go to church on Sunday. They give money to the poor. So they never imagined being called a racist. I don't have a specific question here other than to what degree do you think she was aware of this larger context? Does she know that this is like a, a campaign that this, that the, that the views that she had of CRT that her parents have, that her friends have are part of some, some campaign, or is that something that just has not filtered through? Yeah. I asked her about that. Uh, sort of, I asked her 
because I, I was really curious to hear her perspective as somebody who had worked in Republican politics in Mississippi, yes. you know, whether she felt like this was something that kind of state and local Republicans, you know, were, were doing to gin up their base or they ardently felt this way. Like, I, I was curious how she thought of critical race theory as a political issue. And she, um, she made, I think what has been interesting to, to me, what she said was, you know, Mississippi is a smaller state. We don't have as much economic powers as, as some other states. You know, I think our Republican Party here in some ways is, is marginal. It's not like we have anyone right now who could probably make a run for governor, like president and win, if that makes sense. Like, uh, and I think Brittany, you know, she, she really kind of felt like here, there were a lot of politicians who maybe did not kind of even know that they were, you know, by making critical race theory an issue, they were like contributing to this campaign that there were people who sort of ardently felt this way about it, um, who, who who genuinely believed it could be like teaching white guilt in some way. Um, but it is true. So the way that we got our bill, there were several bills that were introduced at the start of the session. Um, only one has made it past the first deadline to pass up bills out of committee. And that's the Senate bill that is like you mentioned, um, very vaguely worded. Um, and that bill was very similar to one that this um, conservative think tank in Jackson called the Mississippi Center for Public Policy had proposed. Last year in October, the Center for Mississippi Center for Public Policy had put out this report about how they the research they had done had shown critical race theory was being taught in K-12 classrooms, despite you know, the Mississippi Department of Education saying that's not the case. And they, in this report, they had introduced model legislation that was exactly like the Manhattan Institute's model legislation written by Christopher Rufo. So our, like, just to reiterate, our Senate bill is not word for word what the Mississippi Center for Public Policy proposed it be, but it is inspired by it. So I think you kind of have this dual kind of forces acting where you do have some people who I guess you could say they are they they view this issue in, in good faith if that makes sense they view it as something as something that is actually a problem but then you also do have have actors in Mississippi who um know that this is kind of now now a talking point now potentially a way to get people out for the midterms yeah Molly Minto, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, we went over time. I, I appreciate you giving me the time. It was a great piece. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Right, folks, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break and then come right back to sort out some fact from fiction about inflation. That's uh, always a little bit dry, but we're going to try to keep it interesting. Stay tuned. Provided the marijuana for the heights to be guided by the marijuana and the nation relying on the marijuana. If I want thing, Jamaica lead the way with Rasta for I save the day. Seems supply them with the marijuana while the government tell life on the marijuana. So is up to I and I to free the marijuana. Rasta for I lead the way with the liberty we maintain. For years they persecute. 
And we are back. I'm joined now by Noah Berlatsky, who writes about economic matters. He had a piece this week at the editorial board titled The Pandemic, Not Public Spending, is Driving Inflation. Noah, welcome to We've Got Issues. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time. Last week, we had some inflation news. Mark Zandi, the influential economist and chief analyst for Moody's, said that inflation has peaked and as pandemic-induced supply chain issues get resolved, he uh, expects the rate of inflation to return close to long-term trends. We also had a new consumer price report uh, released with uh, Democrats and Republicans offering their own spin. Um, the RNC, of course, said uh, that this is all a disaster, as they always do, and they blamed stimulus spending and the infrastructure bill and government spending more generally. The White House had a different thing. They said that uh, they noted that Real wages grew in January, that is to say wages adjusted for inflation. And they also noted that car prices are coming down uh, and car prices have played a big role in the headline inflation numbers. Um, and then, of course, West Virginia Senator and King of America, Joe Manchin, who is not the sharpest tool in the shed, said, I told you so in response to all of this. We don't really know what he's talking about. Noah, what is really driving inflation? Um, well, I mean, there could be, there's probably various factors, but I mean, like the biggest thing is that there's, there was, you know, there's a huge pandemic and there was yeah. a huge pandemic spike <laughs> and that has meant that there's, you know, people are out of work or people can't go into work cause they're sick, you know, so there's not enough workers and that affects supply and, uh, that affects the ability to, you know, meet supply and when there's not enough supply prices go up so yeah are there other ways in which the pandemic directly causes inflation uh, besides workers being out sick um well it creates this huge amount of uncertainty in production so you know people are unsure how much to produce that can create bottlenecks um you know people Things are also shut down to prevent people from getting sick. So that affects production. Um, you know, it just kind of disrupts the entire economy. And uh, that can create inflationary pressures. Yeah. Um, now, prices go up when demand grows faster than or outstrips supply of whatever that thing may be. It's a fairly straightforward um, relationship. In your piece, uh, you talk about the supply side of that equation. Just anecdotally, I ended up uh, 2020, 2020, let's say, or began 2021. Let's say by the time I got my vaccination, right, I had a lot of pent up demand. I hadn't spent any money for a while. Um, you know, I cooked all my own meals. I had mixed my own cocktails. I didn't go to see any music. I didn't go to the movies. I didn't take a trip anywhere. 
So I ended up with a kind of a fat bank account. And I also had needs for like clothes and stuff like that. Um, and I'm trying to make up for this lost year with some, uh, I'm a scuba diver, making some trips. Um, so I have to think that pent up demand and increased savings rates, because we did see that average savings rates, you know, the, the pandemic affected people unequally. A lot of people were hurt very badly financially. The rich made a ton of money. And then a lot of people in the middle kind of banked money because they weren't spending it the same way. Um, there was this kind of pent up demand, uh, in some cases bolstered by stimulus payments is kind of being unleashed now. Your, your thoughts No, did you, do we know how much cumulative demand has changed? I'm not sure we do though. I, I think that there's also, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of disruption too, right? Because I mean, I know over the summer, right? I certainly like we took a trip, which was exciting because the numbers yeah. were really low and we were like, oh my God, we're, we can do this right now. So we did. Um, and I'm sure that like, you know, that was the case for other people too, that, 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 you know, they'd put off trips, they'd put off spending, you know, and then Omicron hits and everybody has to, you know, readjust what they're thinking and how, how that's going to affect them. And, you know, supply gets reduced again. It just, you know, I think that there's just a lot of disruption as people have trouble making, you know, long-term economic choices and, you know, both consumers and producers try to anticipate like what's happening next. And that creates a lot of instability. I think that, you know, stimulus payments meant that people have more cash, you know, I mean, like, like the economy is kind of like in that sense that people are, you know, relatively well off, there are jobs, um, like those are all important in terms of, and th that's like, that's like what the stimulus was intended to do. Right. And um, so that's good. But when you have, you know, people feeling like they have more money and then you have these big fluctuations in supply, it can create inflation. And there appears to be another factor, which is uh, not front and center in the discussion about inflation, although there have been certainly reports to about this. Um, for example, Business Insider reports that while inflation is the highest at the, at the highest rate that it's been in 30 years, corporate profits are, uh, and I quote, soaring the most since 1950. So that's the the highest increase in corporate profits in 70 years. And that report, again, Business Insider added, and again, I quote, companies aren't just raising prices enough to cover costs, they're padding their margins on top. And let me bring in what I think is, a, is an interesting and telling anecdote. It's telling because it not only speaks to the issue of inflation, but also how the media uh, cover this issue. So do you, do you remember last month, the New York Times ran this piece um, I kind of got a lot of criticism on like economic Twitter um, about this guy, James Marsh, going into a Chipotle and being so shocked that his favorite burrito, which normally costs eight bucks, was now going for over nine bucks. Did you catch this piece? I don't think I saw that. No. OK, so so this so the New York Times does this whole thing. And I think the piece was titled like, how much should a burrito cost? And this guy, uh, James Marsh, goes into Chipotle and he says, hey, you know, I 
My $8 burrito is $9. And he walks out in disgust. He's so shocked. He's so shocked by the inflation um, that he walks out of Chipotle. And that's kind of the hook of this, of this New York Times article. Then way down deep in the piece, like the 16th paragraph, it notes that Chipotle's revenues are expected to be up by 34% since 2019. So then other people were like, again, this was a piece that was talked about a lot on Twitter and stuff like that. So then others were like, oh, wow, Chipotle is blaming rising costs um, on labor, on rising labor costs. They're saying, oh, we have to pay workers more. By the way, their their increase in cost was a, about 40 cents for that burrito, not even a dollar. Um, but people were pointing out studies show that labor costs have only a marginal impact on what consumers pay at restaurants like Chipotle. But Chipotle CEO Brian Nickel had seen his compensation increase by over $4 million in 2020 to $38 million. And that was, are you ready for this? 2,898 times more than the median Chipotle worker's salary. (laughs) And then, wait a second, it gets better. To top all of this off, the guy who the New York Times hooked their piece to, James Marsh, outraged by his burrito costing a dollar more, actually 40 cents more, turns out to be a professional stock trader. He works at home trading stocks and bonds, and he got $16,600 in PPP loans to use to trade stocks at home, and he doesn't necessarily have to pay those back. And you'd think he wouldn't sweat the extra 40 cents for his burrito. (laughs) I mean, you know, I think it's, I mean, I think the people who are, you know, I mean, there are people who are low income who, you know, I mean, gas gas prices are up. Right. I mean, like, and food prices are up. I mean, you know, people have, there are people who have legitimate concerns. Sure. I mean, I think that, I mean, the thing about the New York Times for me is that, and a lot of this sort of inflation discussion, I mean, I think it's kind of, you know, our big problem right now is not really economic. The real problem is we've got this pandemic that is not under control right i mean you know like the omicron spike is kind of going down but we don't really have enough people vaccinated to like prevent another outbreak we you know they're sort of slowly rolling out sort of tests and masks but you know governments like blue state governments too i mean like especially red state governments but also blue state governments are like really reluctant to like put other provisions in place to like have mass mandates to like so we're you know, throwing everything testing. open at this point we're throwing right, everything, everything open like, okay, we're gonna wild everything yeah. and you know and and the bottom line is that if like the pandemic is controlled eventually like inflation will come down sooner rather than later but like if we get more spikes we're screwed yeah and that means that we're screwed economically but I mean, you know, like it also means like a lot more people are going to die. I mean, you know, 100,000 people died in the last couple of months. Like that's a lot of people that yeah. shouldn't be acceptable. And, you know, so the the New York Times sort of like, you know, whining about like, you know, some guy, some like affluent guy, like getting paid, having to pay slightly more for a burrito. Well, 100,000 people are dying and they're like, you know, they've got like people like David Leonhardt 
like you know making his name for himself by like you know being like oh yeah we should just open up and you know like people are gonna die but you know it's fine (laughs) yeah i mean it's maddening it's absolutely maddening yeah and and i think that you know, and it's, I think that's the electoral calculus too. I mean, you know, there's a lot of, oh, Biden's in trouble if he doesn't get inflation under control. But, you know, I mean, like the, the bottom line is the pandemic is the thing. I mean, the pandemic is why people feel right. You know, things are on a bad track, uncertain and like afraid and like they can't control their lives. And like, you know, people they know are getting sick and they don't know like what activities they're going to be able to do. And, you know, I mean, like, it's the one thing, you know, you need to, you need to deal with that. And it's like, everybody wants to like, talk about something else. Um, yeah. Because... I mean, that's go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I mean, that's kind of been the way it's been since the very beginning, right? You talk about like, Oh, shutdowns are costing the economy. Well, no, it's not the shutdowns. It's the pandemic that caused the shutdowns that caused the, that hurt the economy. And it's, you know, the, the, the idea is that like, to elide the role of this historic public health crisis and to attribute, um, you know, whatever to efforts to mitigate it is just, this has been a, a, a kind of consistent theme, especially in the conservative media, of course, but not exclusively so. Um, and when you get to inflation, this is obviously political football. As you note in your piece, however, and I will quote you, if inflation was caused by U.S. policy choices, you'd expect it to be confined to the U.S., but supply chain issues are global and so are rising prices. That's also largely missing from the the, the so-called discourse. And when I was mocking the New York Times piece, I didn't want to minimize, I didn't mean to minimize um, the way that inflation is affecting people who are, you know, uh, struggling to, you know, get by because there's a lot of people in that, in that, um, in that position right now, but that the con- the context is, seems to be missing a lot of the context, including price gouging by companies that are using inflation to justify uh, padding their bottom lines. And, and that's something that we, we rarely talk about. To what degree do you think public perceptions of inflation are tied to or divorced from the actual rate of inflation? Like if inflation comes down significantly, as Mark, Zandi, and others predict, do you think that fact will even impact the midterm environment? Oh, sure. I mean, I mean, I think that if, you know, people's people's memory, you know, for political um, anything is, you know, very short. Yeah. If, you know, I mean, if like, yeah, I mean, if if like gas prices plummet between now and November, it won't be an issue. I mean, like, you know, Republicans may still talk about it and that may fire up partisans. But, you know, it's not going to it's not going to be people aren't going to be saying, you know, my life sucks because the gas prices, you know, I mean, like, right. And that that won't be. And I mean, it's this and, you know, I mean, like even more with covid, you know, I mean, like if we don't have any more outbreaks between now and November and if rates go down to what they were like over the summer, right? you know, the Democrats will be in a decent position, you know, midterms are always tough. And, you know, I mean, like, I'd still kind of expect them to lose seats. But, you know, it won't be a kind of, you know, you yeah, wouldn't expect it to introduction a little bit. You know, the, uh, yeah, you wouldn't expect it to 
to be a, you know, a catastrophe. But, you know, I mean, like if we're in the middle of another massive spike, you know, it's going to be brutal, which is, you know, you'd think would be a reason that, you know, people in office would really want to say, (laughs) right, we're going to take care of this now, because if we do, you know, if we if we miscalculate and it comes back in November, we're we're screwed. So they're couched in a in a defensive crouch against uh, Fox News and all of them who are. Well, I think it's I think it's partially that. But, you know, I mean, I think that there's also. You know, I think Democrats themselves sometimes just, you know, have trouble thinking long term and that there's a big incentive when you're in office to say, you know, we have handled this correctly. Things are things are fine. And yeah, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, especially with like, you know, and I, and I think that people don't necessarily. I think the conventional wisdom is not always that the economy is tied to the pandemic, right? I mean, there's this idea that you can, you know, claim that the pandemic is over and that'll allow the economy to recover. And yeah, I mean, we you know, that's that just not Trump. saw that with the Trump here. Certainly. You saw that with Trump, but you, I mean, like, you know, it's, it's the case with Biden too. You know, I mean, I think that like local democratic officials, for example, were really reluctant to close schools or to yes. move to remote learning I know in Chicago that's the case, and I think that's partially because Biden was saying, you know, we won't close schools no matter what, and he was saying that in part because, you know, he'd been advised that closing schools would make it hard for workers to go to work and would hurt the economy. So, yep, yep. Well, if um, if the pandemic is under control and inflation is under control, then I guess Fox is going to find a caravan of immigrants coming up from the south, and that's going to be a big problem. <laughs> well, I mean, they'll probably do that anyway. But, you know, I yeah. mean, that did work very well, right? I mean, in 2018, they didn't. You know, they got thumped. Well, but but President uh, Trump was Trump was in the White House, so we'll see if it works better. No, Berlatsky, yeah. I believe we are out of time. I want to thank you so much for uh, helping us understand what's going on here. All right. Thanks for having me. Folks, the piece is titled The Pandemic, Not Public Spending is Driving Inflation, and you can check it out at editorialboard.com. I would also like to thank Molly Minta and David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Alternate and Ross Story for supporting the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, I would like to thank all of you fine and discerning people for tuning in. Have a terrific week.